Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 64 with Steve Blank of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, hope you're having a great day today, wherever you are around in the world. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. This is episode number 64 with the one and only Steve Blank. So if you haven't heard of Steve, he is a massive, massive driver of the lean startup movement. He's wrote some brilliant books, one namely The Four Steps to Epiphany, which is all about the customer development process. He's wrote The Startup Owner's Manual, where it's just everything you need to know around entrepreneurship. And as I mentioned, he's been a massive driver and uh, one of the people that is behind the Lean Startup Movement. And for those of you that are not familiar with the Lean Startup Movement, it's an innovative way that a lot of tech startups are being built and launched now. It's been uh, pretty much conceptualized also by Eric Reese, and uh, he's been driving this through his book, The Lean Startup, and uh, it's a massive movement and it's really, really powerful. Uh, we've used Lean Startup methodology to to develop products for Founder. I think it's absolutely killer. I highly, highly recommend you check out Steve and Eric's stuff. But uh, look, let's talk about today's episode with Steve. I'm really, really excited to show you this conversation. A little bit of an intro around Steve. He's done eight startups, four IPOs. He's lost $35 million worth of his investors' money. He given off those investors that he lost uh, their money. He got given 
another 12 million off them and he paid them back a billion dollars each to those two investors. So this is just a little bit of a teaser of the kind of caliber of entrepreneur and thought leader Steve is. He teaches entrepreneurship at Stanford University now. This guy is a serious boss and I really enjoyed our conversation. I could talk to him all day. This is a personal favorite episode. I've been telling quite a few of my friends, get ready for this one because I think it's just so good. I'm really proud of uh, this conversation and just how much gold is shared. So that's it from me, guys. I hope you're enjoying these interviews. If you are, please do take the time to leave us a review. Please do subscribe. That way you never miss an interview. And please do check out The Fruits of Our Labor, Founder Magazine. Go to the website, check out our stuff. You know, we're all about just providing as much epic content as we can to support you guys and to help you build and grow a successful business. All right, that's it from me, guys. Now let's jump into the show. Can we just start off with how did you get your job? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess um, what led you to, I guess, teach entrepreneurship and, and tell us a little bit about your background. You've done you've done eight startups, four IPOs. You're known as in many many places the godfather of Silicon Valley. Can you give an an insight around how that all started? Well, the it all started because uh, I guess I was unemployable to do anything else. You know, I, I started my career as a college dropout, ended up kind of unemployed, loading racehorses onto cargo planes at Miami International Airport, and fell in love with uh, not the horses or not even the planes and the pilots, but actually the electronics equipment and um you know, when I asked, how can I get a job in this? Someone said, well, you should have stayed in school. And they said, well, you know, the other place where you're going to learn this is the Air Force. And so I joined the Air Force during Vietnam. Not very bright, but but it was actually quite useful. Spent two years in Southeast Asia. And um, when I came home, I learned I actually did have a skill besides electronics. I was pretty good in operating under pressure and figuring out, you know, patterns from random data and what it was apparently random data. So uh, I ended up kind of backing into uh, startups. Uh, I came out to Silicon Valley in the 1970s and the beginning of the boom times and did eight startups in a row and with ever increasing responsibility. And unlike my students, I've never been smart enough to think I could do it by myself at first out of school. So I kind of worked for other people who were good at it. And eventually I, you know, co-founded companies and then uh, was CEO of them. And then, so that was career two, career one, the military, career two, entrepreneurship, actually doing it for 21 years. And career three has now been, as an educator, almost as long, now thinking about everything we used to teach people was just fundamentally wrong. Not kind of wrong, but completely wrong. Because it was, entrepreneurship was being explained by people who never did it. And so we put together a much better theory, which actually seems to work on how to build companies called the Lean Startup. So that's the background. Now, look, I, I'm I'm a massive proponent of of the lean startup methodology. What you and Eric have this movement that you and Eric has created has has really changed the game for my business and so many other businesses around the world. But before we delve into that, I'd like to delve into you know eight startups, four IPOs. That's that's a lot of experience and years. There's a lot of businesses there, but can you tell us about, I guess, let's, let's touch on like 
your last one, Epiphany. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how that started? Because it kind of fits in nicely with, with what you have, what you guys did with, with the Lean Startup movement. Yeah, Epiphany started when um, my ex-boss, uh, a guy named Ben Webright, who was my boss and mentor for a good part of my career, walked into uh, my house and said, hey, I you know, think this thing called enterprise software would be interesting. Why don't we automate the marketing department? Steve, you know a lot about marketing. And, you know, I listened to Ben and then threw him out of my house and said, it's a very stupid idea. And much like everything Ben had told me, it took me three days to understand what the hell he had said, because after three days, I called him back and realized he had a very good idea. And so we started uh, testing hypotheses about, uh, was this a new domain to automate? How would we automate it? There was this thing called the internet browser that came out. Maybe we should use that as a front end rather than client server stuff. And essentially, we built a company with $125 million of revenue, hired the chief operating officer of KPMG to run it, got Kleiner Perkins to fund it, and went public with a eventually an $8 billion market cap, which is why I'm wow. retired, not doing <laughs> startup nine or 10. Um, my, my children appreciated the last internet bubble. Um, so, by the way, a good chunk of entrepreneurship uh, that your listeners ought to understand is showing up as 80% of the game. It's a big idea which is you could be a genius, you could have insight, you could have whatever, but if you're not standing there volunteering for stuff that just interests you and showing up a lot for both the good jobs and the bad, you're not going to get picked to be part of the team. And so while there are a lot of other moving parts to entrepreneurship, I just want to start with, it doesn't get handed to you. You know, entrepreneurship is not kind of a sign. It's for those who kind of stand up and take a leap and uh, I'm sorry to take that side trip, but uh, that's pretty important. And that was a story of epiphany and almost everything else I ever did. Mm. So, you know, when when you talk about just showing up, you say something else that, that really fascinates me around entrepreneurs being artists. Can you yes. can you give us an insight into what you mean by that? Sure. So, uh, and here I'm talking about the founders of a company, not the employees. Doesn't mean you can't be an artist if you're employee, but founders, if you really think about what they're doing is they're creating something new that's never been done before, either never been done, like literally never been done or never been done in this form. And you kind of go back and you think about, well, who else does that? It's not accountants, you know, not clerks in a store. They're kind of executing a known set of things. The people who are create things out of nothing, out of just their vision are sculptors or painters, or writers who look at a blank canvas, and the next thing you know, there's Starry Night, or see a blank score sheet, and the next thing you know, there's Beethoven's Ninth. And founders operate the same way. They have a vision of something that might be. And much like artists, it's that passion to bring that vision to fruition that drives you past all those miserable times of your co-founders quit, and the toilet stopped up and you're the facilities manager as well. And your <laughs> largest customer just changed their mind and said, they're not taking that big order. In fact, they're not going to be your customer anymore. All that stuff happens. And if what you think is you you've signed up for is just a job, you'll quit in two minutes going, well, why did I put up with this? But if in fact you realize that your eye is on the prize and the prize is something that you're going to create, you'll be driven through all those bad times. And the good news is we kind of understand that being an artist is a calling, not a job. 
And that same is true for entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is not a job. It's a calling. And if you're not called, don't do this or be an employee later on of someone else's vision. But don't do it because your friends think it's cool and, you know, it's, you think it's the neat thing to do. It's the world's worst job, but it's the world's best calling. Mm, I love that. You talk about also showing up. You mentioned showing up. And I, I agree, like persistency and just being consistent is so extremely important. But I have to ask you, of all people, like it must be more than just showing up, right, to build a successful business. You know, you've you've created like eight canvases. I'm sure many more. Not the, probably eight is just your, you know, eight, eight stars, four IPOs. That's probably just your notable achievements like a startups that easy of just showing up like what does it take to build a successful business well you know there's a whole front end to the startup process that neither i nor eric reesner or osterwalder focus on and that's the ideation and creativity phase and in that phase is where do you get the ideas how valuable are they how big are they going to be etc and in fact the, the best person in the world for that who's written a ton of books is Tina Selig at Stanford University focuses on that phase. So step one is you got to have an idea and some creativity and figure out whether it's a small business idea or an idea that's scalable to, to something, you know, that could go global. But the part that we focused on, the Eric Reese, Steve Blank, Alexander Osterwalder, Lean Startup stuff says, so what do you do once you have that idea? What's the most efficient way to build the company? And this is where the Lean Startup kind of comes in, which is a radical break. I mean, just radical. It's not a better version of what we used to do. It is like out of outer space. It's We, we never used to do this at all. And can I describe what it is? The oh, please, stuff? please, please. This is this, this moves into it perfectly because uh, it's a massive movement. There's meetups all around the world. Many different companies have started with this, this methodology. So please. So the methodology is pretty simple. It says in the old days, what used to happen is you'd write a business plan, a document describing, you know, who you are, the opportunity, the size of the market. You do a five-year forecast and, you know, you try to tell your investors it's going to be $100 million in year five, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever units that was. And that was always the answer. And then if you were smart, you turned that plan into nine slides and your VCs loved it and they funded you. And then you simply executed against the plan. That is, you built the hardware and software and you would do alpha test, beta test, and first customer ship. And then you'd stand back and you would assume that the only thing you might have gotten wrong, whether the office was big enough to put all the bags of money that were supposed to come in. <laughs> and it almost never worked like that. I mean, it worked like that enough that venture capitalists kept insisting that this is the way we did it. But we kind of learned something over 30 years of innovation in Silicon Valley. And what we learned was no business plan survives first contact with customers. It's a big idea. But we didn't know what else to offer entrepreneurs. And by the way, where does a business plan come from? It comes from large companies. Is when you would do a second or third or 10th or 50th product at a large corporation, you had a series of knowns, meaning you knew who your customers were. You knew what technology you had. You knew what engineering could build. You knew your distribution channel. You knew a lot of stuff. So you could write it all up in a plan and you could execute that plan. So companies are execution engines, meaning they do the same thing repeatedly, and there are job specs, and we know what everybody's supposed to do, etc. We assumed we could take that same idea, that same process of writing a plan and executing, 
and tell startups to go do that. Here, you wrote the plan. I gave you money. Go execute it. And by the way, if it doesn't work, obviously there was nothing wrong with the plan. It must be your VP of sales. So let's fire the VP of sales and then we'll fire the VP of marketing. And then before we run out of money, we'll fire the founder just to make it even. And by the way, we all kind of laugh because everybody recognized that, but no one recognized there might have been a fundamental flaw. And the fundamental flaw is startups, most of them, don't execute existing business models. That is, we typically don't know who our customers are. We think we know, and we really don't know what our features are, even though the founder will tell you, no, in the vision I have, here's what customers will want. What we really have on day one, and here's the key to the whole lean startup, what we really have is a series of untested hypotheses. And I use this fancy word hypotheses because at Stanford, these students pay 50 grand a year. But in reality, the word, <laughs> the, the word hypotheses means we're just guessing about all this stuff in a startup where there are knowns, that is known stuff, known customers, known channel, known whatever in a company that exists. In a startup, you're guessing. And so instead of executing a business model, here's the big idea, you're searching for one. And this searching for one means instead of just building stuff end to end with every possible feature and sticking it out on the first release, you're in fact thinking, whoa, if I'm just guessing, why don't I stop talking to my co-founders and start talking to people outside my building to actually turn those faith-based assumptions into facts as rapidly as possible. And so the three parts of the Lean Startup kind of allow you to simply do this. The first part is getting all your hypotheses on a single piece of paper. And Alexander Osterwalder invented something called the business model canvas, which is the best way, which is the front end of, of the Lean Startup process to articulate and summarize all your hypotheses, all your guesses about Who's my customer? What are my features? Who's my distribution channel? How am I going to get, keep, and grow customers? Pricing, costs, resources, activities, et cetera. The second part, which I invented, is called customer development. And it's a formal methodology or a formal way of simply getting out of your building and testing those hypotheses, talking to potential customers or partners or regulators or anybody else who's involved in, in, in your potential business. And the third part, and that's all this is, is three pieces, is that as you're going out and talking to these people, you're actually showing them what it's called minimum viable products, which is a fancy term for prototypes that might start out, a prototype might simply be a, a PowerPoint slide or a wireframe or, or maybe some software, but the idea isn't that a MVP is a smaller version of the software. It's whatever gets you the most learning at, the, at, at that time. And so we use something called agile engineering to build minimum viable products. So the lean startup is nothing more than three pieces. This is model canvas to put your hypotheses together, customer development to get you out of the building in a formal way, and agile engineering to build minimum viable products. And if you use this process, you save an enormous amount of time and money, and you also save firing a lot of people. Because most of the time, you're going to discover that your hypotheses, your guesses about a good chunk of your business were wrong. But if you did this the right way, you didn't hire a VP of sales that you're going to have to fire at first. You were doing this as the founder. And so what you end up doing is something called the pivot. And a pivot says, hey, let's make a substantive change to one or more of those business model canvas hypotheses. 
We might change who our customer is, or we might change what features we're offering, or we might change our pricing model. Maybe it's now freemium, or maybe now it's subscription, or maybe we'll change the price itself. And that just allows us to be incredibly fast, move with speed and urgency, but spend like a tenth the, the money we used to spend in the old days. So now you and your listeners have heard the entire Lean Startup semester lecture at Stanford in five minutes. <laughs> awesome. So there's a few things that I'd love to unpack, and these are questions that I've always wanted to ask. That was a great overview. Thank you, Steve. So first things first, when it comes to the stuff from the start, like out of curiosity, how, how back in the day, I know you don't do like you, you do investing and stuff like that now, but how did you generate ideas? Well, you know, it's very funny. I mentioned again, there's an ideation and, and creativity front end mm. to startups. And when I first encountered Tina Selig and her creativity classes at Stanford, I laughed and said, what are you talking about? No one needs this stuff. My biggest problem was which one of the 4,000 ideas I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then I realized, oh, not everybody has that. And so if you're not somebody bubbling with ideas, there is kind of a formal, not formal, but there's a process to go through. And if you think about it, where do ideas come from? And well, one is you might be a domain expert. That is, you perhaps you worked in the a last company where you saw boy, what a stupid way they're doing stuff. And everybody in our industry is doing it stupidly. There's a much smarter way because I've actually watched this process unfold and I know how to make it better. That means you're a domain expert and that's a good way to start a company. There's another source of ideas that says, hey, the government just deregulated airlines or changed some regulation or gee, the healthcare system just changed reimbursement. Well, there's an opportunity here because the rules have changed. And so that's another place where innovation can happen. Or it could be you're a technologist in a university laboratory or somewhere else. And all of a sudden you've invented the microprocessor or, or anti-gravity or something else when you kind of go, gee, I wonder if anybody might be interested in my technology, which is, by the way, Silicon Valley uh, historically was driven from tech. Or there might be a new set of devices and platforms, these things called smartphones. Android or iPhone might be a great platform which never existed before. And now you can build a whole new class of software called apps rather than having to build, you know, big deployable expensive things. So innovation could come from a bunch of areas. The, the biggest risk in being innovative is confusing. And this is what really messes up first time entrepreneurs in confusing your vision from a hallucination. Almost Almost every entrepreneur <laughs> believes that they're visionaries. The mm. data says about 98% of them are hallucinating. And, and the distinction is, is those who are actually true visionaries have got out of the building and tested their vision way before they spend a ton of money on it. The other mistake, by the way, technologists who are early entrepreneurs make is believing that the technology is the entire company. It turns out, even if you have the world's greatest invention, unless you figured out who the customers are, what the distribution channel is, what pricing is, what all the how much it costs to acquire a customer, your technology is going to die because you haven't figured out the rest of the commercialization components or or the pieces that go around your technology. Those are kind of the two failure modes of early stage ventures from new entrepreneurs. You mentioned also business plans. Do you recommend people write business plans? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, the uh, the business plans now kind of fall under the golden rule. 
meaning he who has the gold makes the rules. Um, <laughs> and, and venture capitalists, particularly in places outside of Silicon Valley and some places still require business plans. So whether you should write them or not is irrelevant. Mm. If they require them, they have the gold. Yeah. Now, here's how to write a killer business plan is you actually go through the lean startup process. And instead of creative writing, that is, I, I honestly believe we still ought to be teaching how to write business plans in universities, but we ought to be teaching them in the English department because they're the best example of creative writing that you'll ever do in any university. But it turns out you could actually make this quite useful is if, in fact, you follow the lean startup process, and when I teach this method, you speak to over 100 customers or partners or whatever in 10 weeks, you now can make that plan, instead of creative writing, a narrative that talks about what you've learned rather than what you think might happen. And let me tell you the difference between a plan that actually is fact-based versus one that's faith-based really might make the difference with investors. Instead of saying, I believe, say, you know, here's what the first 45 customers told me or potential customers or, or people who were interested. And here's how we modified our product based on that feedback. You could put that in a plan if people require, still require a plan. So, yeah, look, uh, let's, let's touch on that, that customer development piece. What, what's your general, you know, we, I know we could talk about this all day, but can you give us some general rules? So let's say somebody has an idea. What's, so how many people roughly do you recommend to speak to? A hundred people in person, yep. qualitative, quantitative? It's a, that's a great question. And customer development, just so everybody's not confused, is not a giant focus group of saying, hey, do you like the product? Nor is it a sales process. So I'll back up a bit and say, listen, the first thing you're trying to understand as, a, as an entrepreneur is by the fact that you started your company, you believe you're solving someone's problem or fulfilling a need someone has. On first principles, that's why you're doing this. So humor me and find me some people outside of your relatives who have given you money or your friends in your dorm. Find me some people you don't know who share your belief that that's a problem and not just a, a problem, but a problem they would either pay for or is in the top, you know, three to five things they would use. So step one is let's validate the problem or need. Step two is, okay, Steve, I found those people, whether they're 10 or 20, or I think they exist. Step two is, okay, how are they solving the problem today? And why and how would they use your solution? Not your product, not go sell it, but tell me how they solve this. If this problem is so important, how are they doing it today? And then finally, we could go through customer development and start bringing out minimum viable products and start talking and validating the channel and features and whatever. But the first one is convince me that, you know, anybody else other than you cares about problem and solution. Another aside, by the way, is this works and is pretty easy in a marketplace that already exists. That is, if you're entering an app market or, you know, an enterprise software market, the market exists. But if you're Elon Musk creating Tesla or SpaceX or the first iPhone, going out and asking people about it, something they've never even heard of is like a divide by zero question. And so the question is, well, do, what do I do then? Well, the answer is you still get out of the building, but what you're really trying to do is discovery in a very different space. You're trying to understand what's, what's the day in the life of the, the customer now 
And what's it going to be like when your anti-gravity machine shows up four years from now? And what needs to happen? Well, you know, do we get rid of parking spots? Do, you know, do people need different types of garages? What's life going to be like? And that's worth exploring just a different way than you would explore those answers in an existing market. So do you have a rule of thumb, the, the amount of people that you should be speaking to or that you recommend? Yeah. So the way I teach it is it's 100. You need to talk to 100 people to validate your business model canvas. And I march people through, you know, talk to 10 people to validate customer segments and 10 more that validate, you know, what's value proposition, which is a fancy word for, you know, products and service. 10 more to validate the channel, 10 more to validate pricing. And by the time you're done, you've learned a lot. And while you might have spent, you know, two or three months doing this in 90 days, you've probably saved yourself a year and a half worth of burn rate, you know, frustration and whatever by actually learning all this stuff because people have taught you this rather than you guessed it. Awesome. So look, um, let's move along this, this methodology. Um, we talk about the minimal viable product and it's, you know, the MVP. That's a, that's a buzzword that's thrown around so often. I'm dying to hear your thoughts. Like a lot of people want to ship crap. What's your thoughts on how do you know when to, you know, put that MVP out? How do you know when it's ready? How do you know when it's not good enough or too good? Like, how do you gauge that? So the confusion is um, thinking that the MVP is kind of the alpha or beta of the product. It has nothing to do with the product. And that's the big mistake. And let me give you a specific example. When I teach at Stanford in the engineering school now, almost every year I have a team who wants to do drones. And that seems to be the hot, the hot thing nowadays. And, and I had a team and they did great. They wanted to put what's called a hyperspectral scanner on drones, fly them over almond fields, which um, are, are big in California, but they suck up enormous amounts of water. And we're in the middle of a drought. So they wanted to figure out how much water and nutrients did each almond tree need so they could get very specific in watering. And it was a great idea. And they you know, got an A in the class. And then I got a call, which I almost often do about 90 days later. It would, that went like this is, hi, Professor Blank. We're, we're raising seed money to kind of start our company. You know, we thought we'd call you first. Great. How much you raised? <laughs> Half a million dollars. And I went, for what? They said, Professor Blank, maybe you don't remember. We're building a drone and scanner. I said, I remember. I said, didn't I give you guys an A? Oh, yes. I said, well, you know, by the end of this conversation, I think I might go back and change it to an F. And they went, what? I said, you know, you don't need $500,000. You need $5. And they said, Professor Blank, we've got to build a drone and scanner. And they repeated, I said, listen, I'm not deaf or stupid. I understand what you think you need to do. What business are you in? Now, by the way, what business do you think they were in? Any idea? Oh, geez. I'm not, I'm not used to getting asked the question. I know. I'm cold calling you, just like <laughs> in the class. And so not to embarrass you, they weren't in the drone business. They weren't in the scanner business. They were in the business of providing data to farmers. The minimum viable product on day one for these guys was to actually mock up a report of what the data would look like, either on a screen or as a printout, and take it to farmers and say, would you pay me money if I delivered you this data? It had nothing to do with drones or scanners or anything else. And in fact, when I explained it to the team, they started laughing. They said, darn, we're engineers. Of course we want to build the drone <laughs> and, and scanner. 
And of course, six months later, they did exactly what I suggested and found out something amazing, which they never would have found out. Turns out in the United States, there are these small airplanes that fly over every farm field in the U.S. called crop dusters or, or aerial agricultural sprayers that spray you know, fertilizer and pesticides. Who would have been happy to have those hyperspectral scanner cameras on their airplanes as a potential distribution partner? which they never would have figured out if they would have, if they would have thought they were in the drone business then they would have spent lots of money building drones if they thought their business was delivering data then they were mocking up data and figuring out how to get that right does this make sense for what an mvp is yeah yeah so it's more just discovery if anything yeah and testing. so and if you're an engineer it's really easy to think that oh i get it an mvp is just kind of a defeatured version of my final product no it's about learning the idea of the MVP is to maximize learning at any point in time. So in, in time one for that startup, it was to learn whether the farmers even cared about the data. You know, three months later, the MVP might have been, can we get a stable hyperspectral image on a, on a crop dusting plane? Maybe six months later, it could have been, okay, but now maybe we need drones for, for organic farm fields for example, where there aren't crop dusters. Does that help? Yeah, 100%, 100%. That's that's really, really, really spot on. So the next piece of that puzzle is product market fit, knowing when to pivot. And this is another question that I've been dying to ask you and we have to work towards wrapping up. But, you know, you talk about showing up, persistency. What's the difference between like, you know, persisting with your business model and then just, just, just making it work or pivoting and, and finding that product market fit. First question is, how do you know when you've found product market fit? Judgment and experience. And, and that's kind of tough because if you're a first-time entrepreneur, you don't have much of either. <laughs> that's right. Which makes a case for a good, it's truly, and not being facetious now, makes a case for having a good advisory board. But it certainly depends on your industry. You know, in the enterprise software, when I was selling million-dollar software packages at Epiphany, having three to five customers buying the same thing, we declared that, you know, we were done, time to scale. And think about it. If you have three to five customers on the web or for a mobile app, you know, I'm going to be laughing hysterically. You're off by a factor of a thousand. <laughs> Does that make sense? So yeah. it, it's, it's industry dependent and there are usually some metrics for your business. What you're looking for is a repeatable here. The definition of a startup is as follows. A startup is a temporary organization designed to search for a repeatable and scalable business model. And so you know that you're done when you have found something that's repeatable and scalable. And you're a temporary organization because, by the way, the goal of a startup is not to stay a startup. As much as the bringing dogs to work and having free food is kind of fun, <laughs> that's not the goal, right? Mm. Uh, if it is, you don't want to be a startup. You want to be a lifestyle business. Does it, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So between knowing that, you just just have to just, just work it out. And then if it's not working, you pivot. Yes, and what you're looking for is, and this is hard. You're trying to optimize a global maximum, not a local maximum. And so you're trying to figure out, gee, did I find something that eventually might get me to half a million dollars a year? Or am I looking for something that, if it works, gets me to $50 million a year? And those are hard judgment calls because sometimes the market doesn't even exist yet. Or sometimes it's so clear that 
gee, I could put an input of one new salesperson or one new, you know, person in a call center and my revenue has just gone up. Holy cow, that's repeatable. Sometimes it's not as clear. Sometimes you need to be investing forward. Why Silicon Valley, by the way, and entrepreneurial clusters here work, not because we're smarter than anybody else, but we, in fact, have a lot more experienced people to help us mentor and see patterns that others have seen before. Just as an aside for Australia, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I've seen Australian entrepreneurs make is simply trying to read all the blogs written in Silicon Valley and assuming they all apply to you. It turns out that whether you're in Melbourne or Sydney or Adelaide or Perth or anywhere else in Australia, every city and, and region should have their own what I call regional playbook. That is, yes, here's the basics of entrepreneurship everywhere, but here's what's different about our local ecosystem. Gee, here's where you would get a Series A in Sydney. Oops, I need to raise $30 million in a Series uh, <laughs> Series B. Ain't going to be here. Um, you know, where am I flying to? And who do I do it? And what industry is different? Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. So let's switch gears and we'll work towards wrapping up. Can you create an eight or nine figure business not working 50 hours a week? No. Not possible. <laughs> it's at least for me that's a very short answer it's not even debatable you know, you know in fact maybe the only business is, sell, is selling mail order courses on how to do that <laughs> if people believe you can <laughs> awesome so look uh yeah look can you tell us about you know a couple of your battle scars and, and then we'll we'll wrap there steve and then yeah the last place is is where, where people can find you and, and stuff like that. But yeah, tell us about some of your battle scars of, well, so of working so, on that. So my favorite, my favorite battle scars, my next to last company was of all things, you know, I did two semiconductor companies, supercomputer companies, enterprise software. And by the way, I also did a military intelligence company. I lived at Pine Gap for a year. So I got to know Australia intimately, at least from sand and kangaroos. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, but my next to last company was a video game company, and I was on the cover of uh, something called Wired Magazine at the time. And 90 days after I was on the cover, I realized I was going out of business. <laughs> and just before I did, I called my mother, who was a Russian immigrant, and English wasn't her first language. And so everything I would say would have to go through simultaneous translation in her head. And, you know, after the obligatory, how come you don't call me things, and my, I said, Mom, I'm just calling you to let you know I lost $35 million. Wow. And there was, and there was like silence as she translated. <laughs> and then the first words of, out of her mouth were, so where'd you put it? <laughs> I said, no, no, no. I didn't like misplace it. I spent it all. You know, it's gone. And then there was more silence. And then she said, oh, my God. There is nowhere else for us to go. The the country we came from doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and, and then she thought a little more and she was pretty sharp. She said, and our name is blank. We can't even change it. Um, and, and I said, no, 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 mom, the reason I'm actually calling you now is not only did I lose the $35 million, but the people who gave it to me just gave me another $12 million to do my next startup. And there truly was just stunned silence. And she broke into languages I didn't even know she knew. <laughs> and then I thought one of them was Japanese. That was pretty impressive. And then she said, they told us that in America, the streets were paved with gold. I never believed it till now. And, and I tell this story because it's not a Steve Lang story. 
by the way, I turned that $12 million into, I returned the billion dollars each to my two investors. Wow. But I tell the story because it's not a Steve Lang story. It's an, in fact, an entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial cluster story. Because in Silicon Valley and entrepreneurial clusters, we have a special word for a failed entrepreneur. Do you know what it is? Special word. No. Special word for a failed entrepreneur is experienced. In mm. entrepreneurial clusters, you're not considered a failure if you blow 35 million bucks or 50 or 100. You're considered, if you had an ethical failure, someone who learned a lot and is probably worth investing in again. Now, if you blow, blow it three, four, three or four times in a row, they're probably not returning your calls. But that's what makes both capitalism and entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial clusters really exciting and, and, and interesting to people who, in fact, think they have something to offer to the world. This is the best thing you could do with your life is create something that just never existed before. And the payoff, not the goal, but the payoff is you can make a lot of money at it. But the goal should never be the money. It's the calling. It's the ability to to just invent and, and see hundreds, thousands, potentially millions or even billions of people use something that you you created. And what could be more fun than that? Mm, I love that. Well, look, um, we'll wrap there, Steve. I, I could talk to you all day, man. But uh, look, where's the, where's the best place our audience can find you? Then this is yeah, for the podcast. So, so there's a website called steveblank.com. You'll find every possible way to screw up a startup because I've done them. <laughs> You'll find a tab with startup tools. You'll find the secret history of Silicon Valley. You'll find lots of blog posts on entrepreneurship and best practices. So um, good luck to all your listeners. And um, I hope to see something incredibly creative from them. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Thank you for your time. You too. Thank you, Nathan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.